Uh, good morning, Veritas. We're going to continue working our way through Hebrews 4. So if you have your, your Bibles with you, open there. And we're going to tackle verses 1 through 13 this morning. In some respects, this is kind of a continuation of last week's sermon in chapter 3. Um, it, the, reader, the reader's kind of exposed to two sides of the same coin in Hebrews 3 and 4. Last week we learned of the warning, this week we learn of promise. Uh, but there's a lot of similarities between the chapters. Last week we received the warning against inauthentic faith and we learned that perseverance was the mark of authentic faith. And now in chapter 4, the author of Hebrews turns from that warning to the promise of this forever spiritual rest in God's presence. So here's where we're going to go this morning. First, we're going to look at the context a little bit. There's talk of Israelites, Canaan, um, Psalm 95 is quoted a lot. What does all this have to do with us? I, I think if we understand that, it's going to help us understand what the author is telling us in Hebrews 4. So after we get the context down, we're going to break down the author's argument in chapter 4. And there's three aspects of his argument concerning this rest that is available to us that, that we'll uncover. And then finally, in some really practical verses, in verses 12 and 13 to finish the, the passage, we're going to look at application, um, some words that are going to help us enter that rest and not drift away, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 1. So first of all, the context, look at Hebrews 3, verses 15 through 19. This is what the author says. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, for who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So three questions we should probably answer out of these verses. One, what exactly is the rest spoken of in verse 18? Um, if you have your, your Bible open, or some of you guys have those Hebrew scripture journals, that word rest shows up 10 times in chapter four. So you may want to make note of that. Uh, repeated words are usually pretty important, especially if one is repeated almost every verse in chapter four. Next, what is that exactly with the disobedience of the Israelites? We see the word rebellion, rebelled, sinned, disobeyed. Okay, that's kind of the same idea. We, we need to know what it is because we don't want to repeat the same mistake as the Israelites and miss out on the rest as they did. And then what does the author explicitly mean by unbelief in verse 19 of chapter 3? So here's what I, I want you guys to stay in Hebrews. Okay, keep your eyes on Hebrews 3 there. I'm going to turn first to Deuteronomy and just look at the initial promise of this rest. Okay, so Deuteronomy 12, 9 and 10. This is Moses to the Israelites. And this is what he says. He says, indeed, you have not yet come into the resting place and the inheritance your, the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all the enemies around you, and you live in security. So that's the initial promise of rest. And it certainly was a physical, social, even political rest to the Israelites, but it wasn't only that. The physical rest that would only be granted to them through faith, it foreshadowed a spiritual rest that was available to them. Uh, it was available to the original readers of Hebrews through faith, and it would only be granted to God's people today through faith. 
So the author is implying there in Hebrews 3.18 that in failing to enter Canaan, a physical place, embodying physical rest, the wilderness generation lost their place in God's final resting place, spiritual rest in heaven. So God gives them this promise, so what do they do, the Israelites? They send out 12 men to spy out this land, right? Kind of get a lay of the land, um, kind of a reconnaissance mission. What are we up against here? Um, Joshua and Caleb, two of the guys that, that go on that spy mission, they come back and they report to Moses, right? And they basically say, hey, the land is everything God promised it to be. We've got one small problem. Uh, there's some really, really strong people that live there that if we want to enter that land, we need to conquer them. And then let me read to you in Numbers 14. So Joshua and Caleb have given the report to Moses. Moses is going to give it to the people. Here's where we pick it up. Numbers 14, verse 6. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who scouted out the land, tore their clothes. Okay? Probably not, not a good thing that they tore their clothes. The people probably responded wrong, right? And said to the entire Israelite community, the land we passed through and explored is an extremely good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord. There's that word rebel again that we saw in Hebrews 3. And don't be afraid of the people of the land, for we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. While the whole community threatened to stone them, so they're not trusting in God through this, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites at the tent of meeting. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people despise me? How long will they not trust in me despite all the signs I have performed among them? So they disobeyed, right? They, they didn't obey the message that God had for his people that, that came through Caleb and Joshua. And when he says that they were unable to enter because of unbelief, that unbelief, it's not limited to not believing the words of two human beings, Caleb and Joshua. Their refusal to go along with the, the announcement, the proclamation of Caleb and Joshua, was proof of the inauthenticity of their faith. And proof of that is verse 11. God says, how long will these people despise me? How long will they not trust me despite the signs I've performed among them? So that's kind of a picture of what we're dealing with in Hebrews 3 and 4. We're in a better position to, to understand what the author of Hebrews has for us in chapter 4. So let, let's break down his argument in verses 1 through 11 to start out. Uh, again, if you have your Bible and a pen in front of you, you may, may want to make note of three words. It's the same Greek word that he uses to start each aspect of the argument. It's therefore in verse 1. You might want to circle that, underline that. It's therefore in verse 6. And it's then in verse 11. Those kind of mark the start of each aspect of his argument in this chapter. So first, Hebrews 4, 1 through 5. Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them, since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he said. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Even those works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this day, in this way, excuse me. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Again, in that passage, he says, they will never enter my rest. 
So even though the wilderness generation fell short of God's promise rest, we see that in verses one, three, and five, that doesn't mean that the promise is null and void. It's still open for us. This is why we should heed the warnings of chapter three and the one that's repeated at the beginning of this chapter. Author says, in fact, the promise has been open ever since God finished creating the world. Didn't start with the Israelites in the promised land. He quotes Genesis 2-2 there. You guys know this, that God rested after the sixth day of creation. Doesn't mean that God has been inactive ever since, but he rested from his creative work since then. And although we don't rest from the same work as God, we can partake in the same rest as God. He refers to it as my rest that will enter in verses three and five. Don't worry about what we're gonna rest from. We'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit. But for now, don't miss the author's first point here. Because God's rest remains, begin to fear. Get that from verse one. Because God's rest remains, begin to fear. Now, if you have a CSB Bible, it says, let us beware. I think a little bit more accurate translation is let us begin to fear. Because the key word there is begin. Here's what's going on in Hebrews. It's pretty evident that the original readers of this letter, they don't have a proper fear of God. They're dealing very carelessly with God's word. In other words, you're not fearing right now, you haven't up to this point, but I need you to begin to fear, he's saying to them, for your own good. And let me reword verse two for you to to help you kind of get, get the tone of what he's saying, get the gist of it. Look at Hebrews four, verse two. Oh, you're not just, a little bit scared yet, even? Well, look at what happened to the Israelites. They heard the same gospel message as you heard, and they're not in heaven right now. Okay, probably would have made their ears perk up a little bit, right? You guys remember how Mark talked about fear a couple weeks ago? He said that we should fear consequences. It's actually a, a spiritually healthy thing for us to fear consequences. And here the author of Hebrews is telling us to fear the possibility of missing out on God's promise. If there ever was a biblical use of FOMO. Uh, This is it right here, right? That's pretty obvious, I think. But but in all seriousness, a proper fear of God and his word, the author is saying here, it's more than just hearing the message. They heard it. And he's not just talking about the announcement from Caleb and Joshua. They heard the gospel message. And evidence of them not believing it was not following God as he's trying to lead him into the promised land. Getting into heaven, experiencing God's final rest for us, it entails more than just hearing the gospel. It's gotta be accompanied with faith, right? We see that in verse two. We access God's place of rest through faith. Because don't be mistaken, when he says that the promise did not benefit them, the word he uses there means uselessness or futility. The promise was useless to you because you didn't meet it with faith. Last week we learned that authentic faith um, is marked by perseverance. The author is pointing to another marker of authentic faith that we're gonna see in a little bit, but let's go to the the next set of verses. So second, second part of his argument, verses six through 10 here. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, He again specifies a certain day, today. He specified this speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. 
For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his works, just as God did from his. So we see a little bit of repetition here in these verses, right? The promise, it's been available since God rested from creation. Uh, It was available to the Israelites. It was available to the original readers of Psalm 95 during David's lifetime, and it's available for us today. But what does the author add to his argument in these verses? It's a sense of urgency. It's a sense of urgency. Because God's rest remains, repent now. That's the second aspect of his argument here. Because God's rest remains, repent now. You see he uses that word today, right, twice in verse seven, and that refers to a period of time, right? It's the period of time between the rebellion of the wilderness generation and the second coming of Christ. But here's what's really important to know. The second verse of this book, the author of Hebrews tells us that we're in the last days right now. So that period of time, from the wilderness generation to the second coming of Christ, we're at the end of that time right now. It, it should spark just a bit of sense of urgency in us. And notice in verse six, he says, well, some, not all, some are gonna enter that rest. So what's he saying here? If you test God by seeing how long you can presume on his patience, you're gonna miss out on that rest. It's this attitude of, let me first kind of squeeze every bit of pleasure and satisfaction by following my own desires out of this life. And you know, Jesus will be there. He'll be waiting for me when I'm done with that. He's patient. He's full of grace. Let me just live my life right now and I'll get to Jesus someday. And you know, God is patient and he is full of grace, but this is the exact attitude that this book explicitly warns us against. It's one that is completely devoid of any fear of God. It treats God in a really cavalier way, trifling with him, as if he is just of little importance to us. And don't miss this, the main contrast in verses six to eight, it's not primarily between an earthly rest and a physical rest, okay? It's between listening, believing, obeying, holding fast on one hand, and failing to do all that on the other. That's the contrast. So a question still remains from these verses. What what are the works? I said we'd get to this. What are the works that we are to rest from when we get to heaven? Well, it can't be all of our good works, right? I mean, we're still gonna do some. We're still gonna love each other in heaven, right? And this isn't, um, it's not a glorification of rest, so as to kind of demonize work. Uh, we're gonna work in heaven, the Bible says. So it's not that, so, so what are we resting from? Do you remember when Jeff opened this book for us about a month ago? He, he described Hebrews as a book that helps us on this journey of following Jesus. This really difficult journey of following Jesus. We're gonna rest from all that goes into the difficult part of that. You know, my wife and I, we started a new connection group and we're three weeks in and we we just absolutely love the people God's brought to our group. And last Monday, the the question we opened up with was, um, what have you had to persevere through recently in your walk with Jesus? And I was so proud of the people of our group. I mean, three weeks old, some of these people was the first time in the group and they just opened up. Talking about 
someone in our group whose spouse came to them not too long ago and said, actually, I don't love Jesus anymore. I, I want to get a divorce. And, and that person fighting for that marriage, fighting for a long time, clinging to Jesus, ended in divorce. And this person couldn't go on enough about God's goodness and faithfulness last Monday. Talking about another couple who, they're married and, and they're struggling right now. They're just trying to make it to the end of the day. That was their words. Just make it to the end of the day. Just hold out so God can heal our relationship. Another person who's experiencing hostility at work because of their faith. And first, bitterness toward their coworkers, but persevering in clinging to Jesus and that bitterness turned toward love to those that were hostile. Near paralyzing anxiety, one person said in our group. Those are the things that you're gonna rest from when you get to heaven. You know, Psalm 23.3, in the message, it, it translates that you let me catch my breath. I would imagine one of the first things you're gonna do when you get to heaven is this. And you're never gonna have to catch your breath again. Never gonna have to catch it again. Keep fighting, Veritas, keep persevering. The walk with Jesus is not, is not easy. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. And you know how Hebrews describes what you're gonna see? You're gonna enter a festive scene, Hebrews 12 says. A festive scene is awaiting for you in heaven. You're gonna have absolutely unbroken fellowship with your heavenly father. Unbroken. But we're not there yet. So what else are we to do in the meantime? Well, the main command of this passage, it comes in verse 11. So let's look at verse 11 here. Let us then make every effort to enter the rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Because God's rest remains, make every effort to enter that rest. Because God's rest remains, make every effort to enter that rest. What's the author of Hebrews getting at here? There are gonna be no bare minimum Christians in heaven. Okay? Uh, truthfully speaking, that term bare minimum Christian, it's, it's actually an oxymoron. It, it doesn't make sense. The genuine Christian, it, they never approach life with the attitude of, how little can I put into my walk with Jesus and it still be adequate to get me to heaven. The genuine Christian would never take that attitude. And here you really see the three aspects of the author's argument kind of piling up, right? They're, they're, the one kind of flows into the other. Fear God, right? Anybody who has a fear of God, what was point number two? They're gonna have a sense of urgency. And anybody who has a sense of urgency, they're gonna have a zeal, they're gonna put effort into their walk with Jesus, right? You can see how the, the aspects of the argument kind of just build on top of each other. Now, how are we supposed to think about this phrase, make every effort? Sounds maybe a little bit opposed to grace, 
Sounds like we're trying to earn our way into the resting place that God promises. Remember that grace is not opposed to effort. Okay, grace is opposed to earning. There's a big difference between the two. What's the difference? Well, God works and we work. You gotta get the order of those right. Okay, earning says, I will make every effort so that God will work in me. Earning says, I will make every effort so that God will work in me. Effort, on the other hand, says, God has already worked for me in Jesus Christ, and he's working in me to make me like Jesus Christ, therefore, I'm gonna make every effort. But why is it essential here that the Christian put forth great effort? Simple, you never stay in one place when you float. You never stay in one place when you float. Where do I get that from? Just turn your your Bibles one page. Hebrews two, verse one. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. You picture a boat stranded out at sea just floating there, and it's never gonna stay in the same place much less make progress toward its intended destination. It's gonna float. And in the same way, the Christian who simply tries to float is gonna drift further and further away from Jesus Christ. So practically, what does it mean to make every effort? Well, he kinda tells us here in this verse, in an indirect way, if the reason for making every effort is to ensure that we won't he says, fall into the same pattern of disobedience as the wilderness generation, then making every effort must mean obedience. So, some questions for you then. Really, this comes down to two things. Are you making every effort to one, kill sin in your life, and two, cooperate with the spirit working in you? Okay, so let me ask some some self-diagnostic questions here. Are you actively identifying the most prevalent sins and idols in your life and starving them daily? Are you making every effort to increase in your knowledge of God's character and will? Bible studies are a great way to do that. Kicking off today. Are you making every effort to cultivate godliness, right? For example, you know, your ability to be patient toward your children, your ability to exercise self-control over your flesh. Are you making every effort to love those you dislike or disagree with? The wilderness generation missed out on God's rest because of disobedience, but don't think that obedience is the condition upon which that rest is based, okay? Faith is the condition. But as we learned last week, there are markers of authentic faith. Perseverance is one, and here we see that obedience is one as well. Now we see the author's application of this command as he gives his readers another reason why we're to make every effort. So let's finish up this passage, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So, 
Make note of that first word, if you're in the CSB, it's for, right? That, that kind of links these verses with the previous command and, and it kind of gives a reason or a conclusion to his argument. So what's the conclusion that's been reached? Well, in, in essence, he's saying one way or another, God's word is gonna expose your faith. It's going to bring out into the open whether or not it's authentic or inauthentic. You might as well make every effort to follow Jesus because the truth is going to be found out in the end anyway. Just as God's word did with the wilderness generation, it's gonna confront us with two options, rest and wrath. Now I want you to to understand the, the main emphasis of these final two verses, it's not the destructive power of God's word. It is true that God, God's word has a destructive power, right? It can condemn, it can judge. But there's, there's a, a balance here, right? The author's also emphasizing the life-giving power of God's word. These words are meant to encourage us. You might say, well, how? Well, I, I wrote down several words that I might describe myself by if I was left to myself, okay? If I'm left to myself, I'm weak, I'm foolish, I have evil and selfish desires. I justify and minimize my sin. In other words, I can't trust myself, and neither can you, right? But in God's goodness and his grace, he gives us his word to really to save us from ourselves, right? What exactly does God's word do? Well, he gives a lot of qualifiers here, right? A lot of adjectives. I'm gonna break this down to simplify for you. Number one, God's word diagnosis. Right? It diagnoses. I get this from living, penetrating, able to judge. So for the reasons I just stated, because left to myself, I'm weak, foolish, etc. You, you can't give yourself an accurate diagnosis of your heart's condition. That's impossible for you to do. But these verses say that nothing escapes God's scrutiny. Nothing. These words taken together kind of describe both a probing and a sifting. So God's word kind of, it kind of probes, it kind of jabs at your heart, right? Makes you feel uncomfortable, but it also sifts, right? It, it digs down into the deepest recesses of your heart, where the motivations of your actions, even the motivations of your thoughts are, and it sifts it, right? It separates the good from the evil, the pure from the impure, the authentic from the inauthentic. So God's word diagnosis. Second, God's word exposes. I get this from all things are naked and exposed, right? Brings it out into the open. No one can hide from God. You can try to suppress what his word reveals about you, but it's really futile to try to do so. You can't grab a bunch of fig leaves like Adam and Eve and cover up the most shameful parts of your sin. God sees all. He knows all. God's word diagnosis, it exposes, and last, it goes to work. I get that from effective. That word effective in the CSB, it's that Greek word energes, where we get the word energy from. God's word has energy. It goes to work on our souls, especially if we allow it to, transforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So what's the explicit application here? Allow God's word to cut you open and to go to work on you. Allow God's word to cut you open and to go to work on you. I, I wanna be clear, there's a big difference between reading your Bible and allowing God's word to cut you open as you read his Bible. 
So number one, use God's word as your lens of self-reflection. Like I said, that doesn't just mean that you read your Bible, but remember when Jeff asked us several weeks ago, he said, does God have the right to contradict you, to redirect you? Well, when you're reading your Bible, you especially stop and pause at those verses or passages that contradict your soul, that rub you the wrong way. You know the feeling. Sometimes it's, it's kind of a, a, a feeling where you're sick to your stomach. The Holy Spirit's convicting you. You don't drift past those verses. You stay in those verses until you figure out how God wants to change you. You don't suppress what God reveals to you. You confront it head on, face to face. And then second, you go tell someone about it. Tell someone about your sin. Call that confession. Veritas, you you have to have at least one person in your life that knows the ugliest parts of your heart. At least one person. Ray Ortland, pastor, he's he's comparing confessing sin to God with confessing sin to our fellow human beings. And he says this, he says, well, you know, confessing sin to God, that's one thing, but confessing your sins openly to brothers or sisters you respect, that's different. It's like dying. It destroys the false self you've been projecting. Because you're either confessing your sins or you're suppressing them. You can be impressive or you can be known, but you can't be both. And when you start revealing the sin-sick person you really are, Jesus himself becomes more real to you. So let let God's word cut you open, tell it to somebody, and then just repeat steps one and two often. Repeat steps one and two often. You know, every Sunday morning, I pray through Colossians 3 for my family, And, and about a month ago, I was praying through Colossians 3, and I got to verse 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not become discouraged. The word exasperate, it means to embitter or to make resentful. And I felt like God cut me in two with that verse, guys. Brian, you discipline your kids because they disrupt your comfort, not because they disobey sometimes. You guys have to understand, that's the last thing I want you to know about me. I probably take an unhealthy amount of pride in trying to be a perfect father, but I'm not. And I went for weeks with that on my soul, and I wanted to be impressive more than I wanted to be known. And then I read that quote by Ray Ortland. And 6 a.m. discipleship group the next morning, I said, guys, we're gonna confess sin. And I looked another man in the eye and said, I am harsh with my kids. You need to know that. Guys, I felt like a part of my sinful flesh just died that morning. It's awfully hard, but it's awfully healing as well. Guys, the things that you least want others to know about you, the most shameful and disgraceful sins that you commit, those are exactly the ones that Jesus poured out his blood for you, to heal you and to wash away those sins. 
Because listen to this. This is Ray's son now, Dane. Ray Ortland's son, Dane Ortland, says this. I love this. I haven't stopped thinking about this quote ever since I read it. Listen now. Jesus is not against you because of your sin. Okay? Jesus is not against you because of your sin. He is with you against your sin. Okay? Let me say that again. Jesus is not against you because of your sin. He is with you in lockstep, in solidarity against your sin. A final rest awaits where the fight against the sin, the sins that you hate the most, it's going to be over forever, Veritas. It's going to be over forever. Never going to have to catch your breath again. Until then, though, let's walk in a fear of the Lord and let's make every effort to enter that rest. Let's pray. Mm. Jesus, you are our shepherd and we don't need a single thing if we have you. You let us lay down in lush meadows. You find us quiet pools to drink from. You let us catch our breath. You send us in the right direction. And even when the way goes through Death Valley, help us to not be afraid because you're with us, you're at our side. Your trusty shepherd's crook makes us feel secure. You serve us a six-course dinner right in front of our enemies. You revive our drooping heads. Our cups brim with blessing. Your beauty and love chase after us every day of our lives. Jesus, we can't wait until we're back home in the house of your father for the rest of our lives. Amen.